Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Any day on the Lower East Side is a good day for me. My name is Luis Guzman. I lived for many years on the Lower East Side. I went to Seward Park High School, made a lot of friends there, friends that I still have to this day. My mom still lives on the Lower East Side. God bless her. She's 83 years old. And quite a few of my mentors are still on the Lower East Side. I love walking around the neighborhood and just running into my people. And then you could go to a place like Adela's on Avenue C between 4th and 5th Street and get some of the best Puerto Rican food on the planet. When you go to Adela's, I'm going to tell you, it's like going to my mother's house to eat. But it's really important keeping a lot of these staples because they're like mom and pop's places, you know? There's a diner on Grand Street called Safis, Z-A-F-I-S. I've been going there for breakfast, I'm not kidding you, for like 40 years. But when we talk about lost cultures, you know, a lot of the places that used to exist 15, 20 years ago no longer exist. It's been minimized. And the places that are still there is because they gone through the grind. They still serve great food and there's still places for people that raise their families that live in that neighborhood that have gotten the continual support of the neighborhood, and also a lot of the people that have moved in, you know, because there's nothing like a good home-cooked meal. The Lower East Side is a neighborhood in New York City that many people from many different backgrounds have called home. Colonizers from the Netherlands and England, followed by immigrants from Germany, Italy, and China, have all lived there, as have many Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. Later, in addition to immigrants, there were migrants from within the United States, such as Puerto Ricans or African Americans from the South. And of course, before any of those groups, there were the indigenous people, in this case, the Lenape. What ties all of these groups together, though, is that they left their mark on where they lived during their time there. Welcome to Lost Cultures, Living Legacies, a podcast from Travel and Leisure. I'm your host, Alicia Prakash. What can we learn about a place by delving into the people who once lived there? In what ways do cultures build upon each other as populations come and go? How do they complement each other, interact, and leave their marks on the people that come after them? And are cultures ever truly lost, even if the people move on? The Lower East Side. If you're familiar with Manhattan, the neighborhood's matter-of-fact name pretty much tells you where to find it. Though its boundaries have shifted through the years as neighborhoods around it have become more defined themselves. Suffice it to say, though, no matter who is defining where it is, the outsized amount of cultural history the Lower East Side holds belies its relatively small size. And it's no-nonsense name for that matter. 
The term melting pot gets thrown around a lot. It's often used to describe both the United States as a whole and a neighborhood like the Lower East Side more specifically. But melting pot doesn't accurately describe a place so rich in cultural specifics descended from around the world. Many people from many places do live and have lived on the Lower East Side. And while these groups have often associated, interacted, even influenced each other, they've also had to struggle against being erased or forgotten. But it's not the fact that so many people from so many cultures have lived on the Lower East Side that makes it special. What makes it special is the struggle of the people to leave signs of themselves and their cultures in the neighborhood. And each group has certainly left their marks, however visible those marks may remain. But where is this neighborhood of many cultures exactly? Well, first off, it's in New York City, the lower part of Manhattan to be more specific. But try to get more specific than that, and you might just run into problems. Ask a local what the boundaries of the Lower East Side are, and the answer will likely depend on who they are and how long they've lived in, worked around, or otherwise been aware of the neighborhood. But that's largely because it's had to grow and shrink over the years to accommodate many people from all around the world who, for a variety of cultural, economic, logistical, and personal reasons, either chose to live there or ended up there and made it a home nonetheless. Today, the Lower East Side is known as a destination for so-called authentic cultural cuisines from around the world, though where and when that authenticity lies could be a great topic of conversation. When you go to that shop that's been in operation for a century or more, is the dish there the same as what you'd find today in its region of origin? Or is it now essentially on its own branch of the food's family tree, just as delicious in its own way, but now a cousin twice removed? Those music venues you may go to on Ludlow or Houston, or any of the art scenes you may check out, from small galleries all the way up to the new museum— are arguably descended in some way from a proud tradition of underground spaces that sprung up in real estate vacuums left as one century-long influx of residents subsided and before another took hold. The neighborhood's mix of buildings and architecture just may owe any character it has left to the many lives lived within its numerous but dwindling walls, as newer-style developments and other clear, though far from fresh, signs of gentrification continuously pop up. The one constant throughout the history of the Lower East Side has been change, and the engine of that change has always been people, or perhaps more accurately, peoples. The Lower East Side has long been known as a neighborhood of immigrants. Why is that? Really where it starts is tenements themselves. This is Dolan Cochran, Education Coordinator for Public Programs and Content at the Tenement Museum, located on the Lower East Side. You know, when we start to see the first tenements really, really being built in large numbers in the Lower East Side in the mid-19th century, they are a new form of housing, they are a new form of building and architecture, and one that really is built by immigrants to create more housing and what was at the time better housing for their communities. So that's really going to start to anchor these immigrant populations in the neighborhood, people who are looking for affordable places to live, available places to live, places to live that eventually are going to be close to main sources of employment. Tenements also really introduce mixed-use architecture in a large scale, so you're going to have businesses and homes right on top of each other. And that's always going to be important in a kind of economically dense immigrant community. So you can start businesses, you can 
run down to the storefront that sells something you miss from home. So for all of these economic reasons, it's really going to begin the process of anchoring these immigrant enclaves in the neighborhood. The first large enclave of non-English speaking people to arrive on the Lower East Side and make use of these tenements in a major way were immigrants from Germany in the mid-19th century who christened the area Kleindeutschland. And just to get a sense of how densely packed and densely populated these communities can be, by 1870, Kleindeutschland is the fifth largest population of German speakers in the entire world. So that's just the German population living in what is now the Lower East Side in Manhattan. By the 1880s, Kleindeutschland, or Little Germany, was no longer the center of the German population in New York as people with German heritage began to coalesce further north on Manhattan's Upper East Side in Germantown, or modern-day Yorkville. Meanwhile, on the Lower East Side, a new population was ascendant as Jewish immigrants arrived in larger numbers, mainly from a region called the Pale of Settlement in the western part of the Russian Empire, where modern-day Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, and Ukraine exist today. The general kind of very simple overview is that it's going to go from German to Eastern European, Mediterranean, and now we have Chinatown, and now we have a lot of um, Spanish-speaking communities. But in reality, these communities are much more intermixed than we might imagine. It's not like turning on and off a light where the community goes from speaking German to speaking Yiddish. It's a long period of the older population moving out while a new population moves in. And even when one population kind of supplants the other, you'll see elements of the older community that remains. Oftentimes, it's those businesses or churches and temples and synagogues that, you know, really become these centers of cultural mixing for a very long time. And it's why we have so many legacy stores in the area today, legacy businesses that are owned by third, fourth generations of the same family that are really holdovers from earlier communities here. According to Cochrane, at its height, sometime between the 1880s and 1920s, the Jewish population of the Lower East Side was the largest of any in the world. Meanwhile, overlapping with that period, Little Italy was at its peak size in terms of population from the 1900s to the 1920s. But just as immigrant groups arrived in the increasingly crowded and bustling Lower East Side of the turn of the 19th century into the 20th, others arrived from elsewhere in the city to establish settlement houses. New York's first settlement house, which was also the first in the country, was opened in the neighborhood in 1886, while several more followed in subsequent years. These are organizations that really start as outsider entities. When we go to the progressive era, we see a lot of activism, a lot of social activism on the part of wealthier, very educated Americans who want to come and help the poor. They want to help the immigrants. But, you know, these people aren't necessarily the best people to know what working class immigrant communities and individuals need. There's a lot of paternalism. There's a lot of sort of moralizing towards the poor and a lot of insistence that what these immigrants really need to do is assimilate and assimilate fast. So these settlement houses start as these kind of almost missionary organizations where they're going to bring bourgeois middle-class culture to these immigrant neighborhoods and teach them how to dress and buy things and speak English properly and serve high tea in their parlors like good American families. And what ends up happening is rather than coming down and changing the communities, 
these activists end up becoming changed by their experience. They become very radicalized. They begin to realize what these people actually need. And it's why these organizations with progressive era roots are still a huge part of the neighborhood today. So Henry Street Settlement and University Settlement and Educational Alliance, they're still real major pillars of the community, providing all kinds of services and classes and employment support, things like that. As the progressive era developed, another major type of institution also developed and became important to the groups living on the Lower East Side. Labor unions. So, you know, as much as tenements are a part of why this neighborhood becomes an immigrant enclave and remains appealing for generations and changing nationalities of immigrants, you also need a place to work. And so the garment industry in New York really develops alongside our large immigrant population down in Lower Manhattan. By 1900, 1910, it is the largest garment industry in the country, one of the largest in the world. 40% of men's wear and 70% of women's wear produced in the United States would have been made right here in New York City. And as a result, Lower Manhattan really becomes a battleground during the labor movements of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And these labor unions, along with advocating for their members' rights as workers, also connected immigrant groups of one era to another. According to Cochran, labor groups such as the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America and the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union were founded by Eastern European and Italian immigrants during the progressive era of the early 20th century, but eventually became major forces in the lives of Puerto Rican migrants who arrived in the 40s and 50s and Chinese immigrants who arrived in the 60s and 70s. So what happened in that gap? Why is there this gap that people don't really necessarily think about the neighborhood in the 50s, 60s, 70s, etc.? And we'll hear the answer to that after a break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before the break, Dolan Cochran from the Tenement Museum on the Lower East Side asked why, after so many decades as a center of immigrant culture and life in New York, the period of the 1950s through the 1970s isn't discussed in the same way as earlier periods of the Lower East Side's history. Here again is Dolan Cochran. There's a complicated story there. You know, that kind of period of time where this neighborhood is what it had been from like the 1850s, 60s into the 1920s and 30s, where it's all of these different diverse immigrant communities, that really comes to an end in the 1920s because of anti-immigration laws passed at the federal level. The big one is the 1924 Johnson-Reed Act. And quite bluntly, this is a racist law that limits immigration based on countries of origin. So certain countries are given very large quotas. Those are in Western Europe and Northern Europe. And the countries where the largest groups of immigrants are arriving, Eastern Europe and the Mediterranean and the Middle East, these areas are cut by between 98 and 99 percent. 
And immigration from Asia is banned. Immigration from Africa is reduced to a single continental quota. And you can imagine the impact on a neighborhood like ours. We've always relied on this movement of people into the neighborhood. So people move in, people after some time they move out, they're moving to growing immigrant enclaves in the outer boroughs and eventually the suburbs. But the identity of the neighborhood really doesn't shift all that much because you still have this flow of people moving in. And now that's cut off. So this is where into the 30s, the population of the neighborhood begins to plummet. Tenements are abandoned or semi-abandoned or knocked down. Businesses close up. So the neighborhood really is experiencing this decline. The immigration restrictions put in place by the Johnson-Reed Act were altered by subsequent legislation in the 1950s and eventually completely replaced in 1965 by the Immigration and Nationality Act with a system that prioritized immigration based on family unification, occupations, and refugee status. But in the meantime, during the period of the 1940s to the 1960s, who was moving to the Lower East Side? The people who are moving into the neighborhood, the populations that are growing, are not immigrants. They're migrants. They're Black families from the South as part of the Second Great Migration. They're Puerto Rican families moving to the mainland after some really disastrous economic policies by the federal government on the island. We asked Cochran to further explain the history of Puerto Rican migration to the Lower East Side in the middle part of the 20th century. So it really begins in the late 1940s. You know, Puerto Rico, a territory of the United States, a colony of the United States, let's be honest. And, you know, although Puerto Ricans are American citizens, the island itself doesn't really have much of a say or representation in the federal government at all. The United States government engaged in what it called Operation Bootstrap in the 1940s, where they basically used eminent domain to sell off a bunch of farmland to petrochemical companies and other industries. And the stated idea, at least, was that these companies are going to hire a bunch of Puerto Rican workers and it'll modernize the economy of the island. And that doesn't happen. They're not hiring a lot of Puerto Ricans. They are also taking over farmland, which was the main industry of the island. So as a result of this policy, unemployment on the island just spikes through the roof. And so many families are forced to move off the island and look for work and homes elsewhere. And this is one of the first great plane-based migrations in world history, right? They're getting on planes. So between like 1948 and 1970, over half a million Puerto Ricans moved to New York City alone. So we're, we're seeing a population dispersal that is comparable to our earlier eras of open-door mass immigration happening in this time period. And, you know, Puerto Rican history in New York City is, of course, much deeper than the 1940s. But this is the first time we get these really, really, really large uh, communities of Puerto Ricans arriving here really, really important episodes of New York City history happened in this community. Number one, this community was very active in the fight for bilingual education in our public school systems. A lot of Puerto Ricans arriving in New York and going to New York City public schools and finding English-only sink or swim education classes as their only opportunity. So from that experience, many of them become activists and teachers, and you know they're really responsible for the bilingual education program in New York City public schools today, which is the largest in the country. There's still many Puerto Rican restaurants. There's also the New Rican Poets Cafe, which is one of these venues that starts in the 60s and 70s that was at one point so, so common here. 
But yeah, they are still going strong and have regular performances and concerts. And what about one of the other largest remaining cultural populations on the Lower East Side today? It's a very interesting story. And I think for a lot of people, the way that they might conceive of the Lower East Side is probably, oh, you know, it was this immigrant group and this immigrant group, and then Chinatown. Chinatown, they're the new kids on the block, the most current iteration of this pattern. But actually, Chinatown predates most of the immigrant communities that really came to be here. Chinatown really forms in the 1870s. There's, you know, a pretty sizable population of Chinese merchants and businessmen in the Lower East Side. And 1882, we pass our first really major exclusionary immigration law, the Chinese Exclusion Act. So, you know, pretty clear as to the intentions there. And, you know, as much as there is an early Chinese community by 1882 in New York, there are huge thriving Chinese communities elsewhere in the country, especially the West Coast and the Western states and obviously Chinese labor really vital to the development of those areas. 1882, it's a complete ban. There's a lot of language about how it's to protect American workers. But, you know, again, you don't see the same language for immigrants from Europe who are coming over at the same time. So, again, it is a pretty blatantly racist law. So, for a long time, the Chinese populations through the rest of the country are going to kind of filter to the coasts. And Chinatown in New York does survive. And, you know, a lot of immigrant enclaves that grow up in this neighborhood, they develop alongside Chinatown, and it has an impact on their culture. I think, of course, the most prominent example being of the really prominent relation between the Jewish population and the Chinese population, where so many Chinese restaurants were open on Sunday, were open on major Christian holidays, and happened to be kosher. So there's this great tradition of Chinese food becoming a, a Jewish-American staple. In 1965, we passed the Hart-Seller Act, which is, with some alterations, the sort of legal regime of immigration in the United States today. And it's going to open immigration to all of these areas that had for decades, and in the case of China, nearly a century, really, been heavily restricted or banned. And so Chinese immigrants are going to start arriving from Hong Kong first and then other areas of mainland China in the late 70s. And moving to New York City and finding this community that has survived all of these changes. And at one point, Lower Manhattan's Chinatown by population was the largest in the Western Hemisphere. This is late 80s, early 90s, so even bigger than San Francisco and these other areas. And so it's largely, though not entirely, these communities, migrant populations like Puerto Ricans and immigrant communities like that of Chinatown, along with artists and others in search of affordable living and the open spaces of the recently partially emptied Lower East Side, who start to define the makeup of the neighborhood in the second half of the 20th century. And they're all coming to the neighborhood for all the same reasons as the earlier populations. Cheap rent, lots of it, good union jobs in the garment trade. And, you know, this is a period of time that isn't necessarily held up in the same way as other communities and other time periods in the neighborhood's history. But it's a really fascinating one. You see all the same thing, right, where there are buildings that are being taken over and remade by the community. The community is retaking these abandoned public spaces or empty building lots and turning them into the first community gardens in the city. There's a really lively art scene in these abandoned or semi-abandoned buildings that can be turned into studios or concert venues or theaters. 
And it's also these communities that began to face displacement as the 21st century loomed and eventually arrived. Tenements aren't seen as gross and undesirable anymore. It's a really happening place. And people are coming in for those jazz venues and those theaters. And they want to live the bohemian urban lifestyle. And so they're willing to move into these small tenements in aging buildings. And developers take note. So we are in this period where the neighborhood is shifting. It's changing. And I think something that's very interesting about this change, a lot of the same things that are popular in the neighborhood today would have really been demonized by Americans if we go to the early 1900s, 1920s. We were the melting pot, you know? We lived together, we existed together, we coexisted together, but we were a community Actor Louise Guzman again, talking about growing up on the Lower East Side in the 1960s and 70s as part of a family who migrated from Puerto Rico. You hear music, you, you know, you see the different designs that people had in their house. And man, the kitchen was just the absolute best, man. The fragrances that came out of there. You know, I, I guess growing up, that's what helped me to be able just to identify with so many different foods and be welcoming to it because you know sometimes when you just eat the same thing you don't really explore other things that's no bueno you know i was influenced by like i said going into all these different households and experiencing their culture their food their customs i was lucky it was everyday life, man. We all went to school together. We played sports together. We used to get into trouble together. You know, and you're growing up as teenagers, and then you start dating and stuff like that, and that takes on a whole different perspective. But it was just life every day. It's like one Italian girl would be dating one of my Jamaican buddies, or one of my Ukrainian buddies would be dating a Puerto Rican girl, and you know, it was a really cool mixed bag. And we all loved going out. We all loved the music. We all loved the club scenes back then. It's what we did and what we did together. And it was like on the daily, you know. And it was so beautiful to see that, especially on the Lower East Side. Because, you know, back then, Bentonhurst was like Italian. You know, Harlem was black. And Williamsburg was Hasidic. And, Throughout the city, you had all these enclaves, but the Lower East Side was a total mixed bag of people. You know what I mean? Puerto Rican, Black, Jamaican, Dominican, Mexican, Polish, Ukrainian, uh, Jewish, Hasidic, Chinese, Korean. It was just an incredible mix of all these different cultures and food. And um, to a certain degree, it still is. Man, I was so fortunate. We were so fortunate to have that with each other. I mean, look, a lot of change. You know, a lot has changed because I remember when I got my first apartment on the Lower East Side, it was $175 a month rent. That same apartment is 2200 bucks now. And it's still the same building. I don't understand that. You know, 
there's like three, four generations of people sometimes living in the same apartment because people can't afford to move out, you know? But that doesn't diminish the fact that you could walk into any of those apartments and man is still smell grandma's home cooking or mom's home cooking. But, you know, that's the reality of the Lower East Side and the whole fact of, of lost cultures. Well, I feel that the culture on the Lower East Side definitely has changed, but some of that old culture is still there and still hanging on proudly. People are willing to live in small, overpriced studios as long as the tenements they live in look nice on the outside. And part of the fact that what is old about the neighborhood has been part of this appeal has maybe put some speed bumps in certain kinds of development that could really happen here. You know, there might be some people who own a tenement that otherwise might be willing to knock it down and turn it into a modern building. But, well, they know people are willing to pay for the kind of building that they have now. You know, part of the saddest thing, the Lower East Side has lost a lot of its soul because gentrification, but a soul still does exist. And I think the soul of the neighborhood is so important. And so is reflected again in the mom and pop's places, in the people that are there, in the people that have raised their families there. But you know, there's people still hanging on. And I'm grateful to those people. My mom, 83 years old, there's a bench that she sits on with her girlfriends. Like if somebody's sitting on their bench, oh, they better move. You know, and seeing that that still exists, beautiful. It's the history of these places. It's the history that's been maintained, you know, because some things you can't just wipe out. You just can't. The Lower East Side is definitely a destination spot for people. And it's become a destination spot because there are such a huge variety of restaurants and bars and style and fashion. But you still have all those different cultures, you know? You still have Chinatown. You still have places like Adela's. You still have places like Cats. You want a great steak, man. You go to Lucian's and Beauty in Essex. Listen, it's always going to be a welcoming neighborhood, the Lower East Side. That's what it is. If you've never been to New York City and you're looking at a must-do list, I'm willing to bet there's a couple restaurants in our neighborhood in particular that are on every list. You know, we have these really, really famous establishments like Katz's Deli and Russ and Daughters and things like that that people are coming down to the neighborhood to see. But yeah, I think that there really is this increased interest in the neighborhood's history. And maybe in part just because it is changing. You know, I think people who are in the know know that the neighborhood as it looks and feels right now maybe won't last forever. So in addition to the tenement museum really developing in the 90s when all of this was first starting to happen, you know, there's plenty of walking tours and other organizations that do architecture tours and things like that in the neighborhood. So, yeah, I think as much as it's a part of going to these legacy stores and visiting Little Italy and Chinatown, I do think part of the increase in tourism is this sense of nostalgia and maybe a little bit of a sense of loss and certainly a heightened interest in efforts to kind of preserve elements of the neighborhood and create landmark buildings, landmark districts. And I think that's an interesting and exciting new frontier that's going to be more and more relevant in the years to come. But there are a lot of communities who are not represented in the 
architecture of the neighborhood as it still stands. So, of course, we can go back to pre-European contact and colonization when this is the land of the Lenape people. We can go to the early Dutch period when the people who live in what is now the Lower East Side were actually New York City's first free black community. These self-emancipated enslaved men and women of the Dutch colony who settled in small farm plots above, you know, the, the sort of fortified city down to the south of us. And these are not communities that have buildings still standing. They don't have streets named after them. They don't have all these other ways that the city can become a record in and of itself for people who have passed through this area. I think walking tours, which are becoming such a, a more common tool at the museum and other organizations active in the neighborhood as well, I think this is becoming a really great way to kind of go beyond the written record and extant preserved buildings as historic markers and resources. From the Lenape and other indigenous people who lived in Lower Manhattan before any European settlers ever knew it existed, to the early Dutch colonizers and Black people trafficked to America against their will as slaves, some of whom reclaimed their freedom and made homes in the neighborhood when it was still on the outskirts of the burgeoning city at the tip of the island. Through the transition, first from Dutch to English colonization, and then as an important part of a city that proved to be a, if not the, center of commerce and power for the post-revolutionary United States. From the subsequent influx of immigrants in the 19th century, including those from Germany, Italy, and China, as well as Jewish people from Eastern Europe, all finding their place in the neighborhood well into the early 20th century. To the migrant populations who made their ways there in search of new lives and opportunities as part of the Second Great Migration and in the wake of imposed economic hardships on the Puerto Rican territory. Due to all of these waves of settlement and because of the contributions of these people and others, the Lower East Side is the rich cultural destination it is today. Truthfully, we've only grazed the surface of some of the key history and cultures that make the Lower East Side what it is. And though some of that history and culture, along with plenty we haven't even touched on, may be lost, at least in their original forms, much of what they were and are remains. And still, at the very least, influences and informs the way people who live on and visit the Lower East Side today experience the neighborhood and through it the world more broadly. Dolan Cochran of the Tenement Museum again. The history of this neighborhood is really the history of diverse communities coming together and, you know, not always peacefully, but, you know, finding ways to manage and mitigate conflict and work together and, you know, form unions that change the country and build these communities. And I really think it speaks to the power of working class communities to advocate for themselves and to create their own communities. And I think that sadly, there's less and less of an opportunity for this to happen, for neighborhoods to kind of emerge organically in the same way. Although, you know, New York City, still to this day, this is a huge part of our identity. You can go to Queens and see much the same kind of processes and communities and institutions that are forming as, you know, the kind of things that we are all nostalgic for from the 1890s and 19-teens and 20s. And the communities that really 
made the neighborhood hip and trendy to begin with, right? We're not those rich developers, but the largely Black and Hispanic communities who came in and built the community gardens and started the jazz clubs and the theaters. And they are still very much here. So on a trip to the neighborhood, visit all the hotspots, but, you know, ask around for some other local favorites too. It's one of the last real neighborhoods left in New York City, especially downtown. You know, because the West Village is all gentrified out. Battery Park City is all these uh, skyscrapers and stuff. But on the Lower East Side, you still find a lot of the original people that have grown up there. There's a real history there. You will discover a lot of things down there. It's a great place. You know, it's it's way different than what it was when I was growing up. I grew up in the best of times, the best and worst of times, but I wouldn't change it. If I had to do it again, I'd grow up on the Lower East Side with the same people and just have the best time. You know, the soul is still there. Some of the culture is still there. Replaced somewhat, but it's still there. We highly recommend you visit Dolan Cochran and the rest of the good people at the Tenement Museum on your next visit to the Lower East Side. The museum is located at 103 Orchard Street, and you can visit Tenement.org for more information about their Tenement apartment tours, walking tours, events, and more. We also asked Cochran for some local recommendations. Vanessa's Dumplings is a big staff favorite at the Tenement Museum. It's been active in the neighborhood since the 90s. Shui Zhao Fuzhou Cuisine, amazing peanut noodles, and is still very affordable. El Castillo de Agua is a Dominican diner that's been active in the neighborhood since the 1980s. And, you know, it's the kind of place where you'll go on your birthday and first communion and graduation, you know, that kind of a family environment. Vanessa's Dumpling House is on Eldred Street between Broom and Grand. Xu Zhao Fu Zhao Cuisine is on Grand Street, just west of Allen. El Castillo de Agua is on Rivington, just west of Essex. And of course, while you're in the neighborhood, Katz's Delicatessen on the corner of East Houston and Ludlow Street is the rare place that is not only pop culture famous, but also offers a quintessential New York experience. Also along Houston Street is Yona Schimmel Kanish Bakery and the storefront location of Russ and Daughters, a Jewish bakery between Allen and Orchard Streets known for their bagels and locks as well as their babka. Or walk to the corner of 1st Avenue and 1st Street to visit the Parisian-style bistro known as Lucienne. And if you're interested in the music culture that blossomed in the late 20th century on and around the Lower East Side, check out the walking tours by Walk on the Wild Side New York City, especially their indie rock or Beastie Boys tours. And let's not forget that though the boundaries of the Lower East Side may now be considered by some to be narrower than they once were, Neighborhoods like Alphabet City and the East Village were once traditionally included in it, and still are, depending on who you ask. Which brings us back to Luis Guzman and his answer when we asked about recommendations for visitors. I put Adela's on the top of that list. That's some of the best Puerto Rican food you're going to find on the Lower East Side. Tell them Luis sent you. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm going to do that the next time I go in. Girl, tell them to call me when you're there. (laughs) Yeah. For real. (laughs) Casa Adela is located on Avenue C near the corner of East 5th Street. Thank you again for taking the time to chat with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This is fantastic. It was 
wonderful chatting with you and hearing about your experiences. And hopefully, you and I can break bread one day. That would be amazing. Down there, I'll see you at Adela's. <laughs> I'll be there. Thank you to our guests Luis Guzman and Dolan Cochran, and thanks also to the Tenement Museum. Be sure to follow Lost Cultures Living Legacies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love your feedback. If you could please rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at travelandleisure.com slash lostcultures. On our next episode, we'll explore the lost cultures of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. So make sure to come back for that. Until then, enjoy your travels. Lost Cultures, Living Legacies is a production of Travel and Leisure and Dot Dash Meredith. I'm your host, Alicia Prakash. Lottie Le Marie is our executive producer. Jeremiah McVeigh is our writer and co-producer. Dominique Arciero is our audio engineer and editor. Stacey Leska is our researcher. Kyle Avalone is our fact checker. This episode was reviewed by Brian Ahern and Dot Coleman, panelists on Dot Dash Meredith's Anti-Bias Review Board, as well as Mackenzie Price, Director of Anti-Bias Initiatives. Jennifer Del Sol is Director for Audio Growth Strategy and Operations at Dot Dash Meredith. Nina Ruggiero is Digital Editorial Director for Travel and Leisure. Maya Catru-Levine is Luxury and Experiences Editor at Travel and Leisure.